You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer started a tiny little school of discipleship in Finkenwald, a rural town in the middle of Germany. The school was committed to the scriptures. They were committed to intentional prayer. They were committed to a common way of life lived together. Bonhoeffer was deeply concerned that the Third Reich was infiltrating the German church and that Hitler not only wanted to control the behaviors of the German people, but he wanted their hearts. So a young historian named William Niesel came to visit Bonhoeffer School because he was suspicious of too much spiritualism. So Bonhoeffer took Niesel on a rowing trip to the Oder Sound, and one author described the scene this way. Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see in the distance a vast field of runaways of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing, and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciplines were reformed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today, he said. This must be stronger than that. And at some level, the size of the seminary was laughable compared to the army of the German regime. In fact, in a matter of years, the seminary would be shut down. But here we are in 2024. Hitler is dead. The Third Reich is over. And the vision of robust discipleship and a prophetic stance against the powers of the age has inspired millions to a lifestyle of devotion to King Jesus. This must be stronger than that. That is an excerpt from our covenantal partnership packet. And this story is the lens at which to follow Jesus. So everything we talk about today has that vision in mind. We are always being formed. Everything has our attention to what degree depends on how much time and focus we give it. But we are always being formed into some image. Whose image is that, is the question. And we're going to cover more ground than I usually do today. But if you can just bear with me for a few minutes while we're in the weeds, I think we're going to come out of it with a clearing ahead of us and a vision for what this year could look like. So the story of God always starts with a promise. The first word is always God's, and the first word is always grace. And with the promise comes a vow. It is our participation. It is our involvement. Jesus takes the cross for us, but he invites us to a cross as well. To live a consecrated life. A life set apart, distinct for the person of Jesus and the purposes of God in the world. And that life is a life marked by power. So a promise, a vow, and power. And I'm going to run those three themes through Moses, Joshua, and us. So let's start with Moses. 
In today's terminology, we use the word promise often, but the language used in the Bible is covenant. God cuts a covenant. And when God cuts a covenant, it is God who initiates. Now, Moses was Israel's first leader. He was an epic servant. And in the story of Moses, it is God who calls out Moses' Moses's name amidst the burning bush. They were men who knew God before Moses, but they did not know God intimately. They did not know God by his actual given name. In Exodus, it says, Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but was not known to them by my name, the Lord. So God Almighty in Hebrew is El Shaddai. And every time you read that in the scriptures, that's what it's referring to. But that is a category. The actual personal name of God is Yahweh. So every time you see the Lord capitalized, it is the personal intimate name. So the Hebrew word Yahweh means he will be. This is the personal name for Israel's God. The intimate name. Yahweh is he who was and is and forever will be. So the eternal, transcendent, magnificent God, El Shaddai, known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that eternal, transcendent, magnificent God reveals himself personally to Moses. As the story goes, Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai on behalf of the people, and this is what God says to Moses. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Yahweh has rescued is the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. He has brought them to himself and is calling them his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests. This is his promise. And at the end of Exodus 29, as the instructions for the tabernacle are being laid out, this is what Yahweh says. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them I am the Lord, their God. So the promise of God is that he will be with them by living among them. And the entire ethos of the scripture is that God has promised to be with his people. And that taps into the entire ache of the human heart. The desire and the longing and the want can only be filled by the presence of the living God. So there's the promise. But then... There's a vow or vows made. In the midst of the promise of God's dwelling, there's a commitment by the people of God to God to keep his covenant. So here's what God says to Moses. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And that's what Moses did. He goes down to the people and consecrates them. Now, when I say the word consecration, here's what I'm talking about. It is an altering of one's daily life for the purposes of being set apart for God. So the call to wash their clothes indicates that setting aside and altering one's aspect of daily living in order to prepare to meet with God. It's essentially a vow. 
It is being set apart and distinct for the person and the purposes of God. So Moses commands them to wash their clothes and says, be ready for the third day because God is coming down. Here's what I want you to see. Yahweh, the Lord, is preparing to do a new thing with his people. He will deliver a covenant and in his presence will dwell the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And it will be a constant reminder that God is with them. And he's inviting his people to ready themselves for that new thing. He's going to lay out his covenant on the mountain. And he actually sets up limits on the mountain because to get too close to the holiness of God would absolutely crush the Israelites. It would kill them. And so God instructs his people to ready themselves, to consecrate. And right after he lays out the covenant with Moses, he lays out instructions for the tabernacle. The very place where God's presence will live. And in the tabernacle you have priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons would serve the people of Israel as priests. They would represent the people before Yahweh. But there's something important that happens in Exodus 29. The entire chapter is devoted to the process of setting apart Aaron and his sons to serve the people of Israel. They were consecrated. Here are a few verses. Now this is what you shall do to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat, the robe of the ephod and the ephod, and the breastpiece, and gird him with the skillfully woven band. Of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And it goes on throughout the entire chapter. Aaron and his sons were being set apart for a distinct calling on their life to represent the people of God to God himself. Now, it was not more noble than anyone else's calling, but it was distinct. It was set apart. It was a moment in time to be consecrated for the person and purposes of God. And then there is power. Now, as the story goes, the people of God were getting disgruntled by the fact that Moses was taking such a long time in discussion with God. And so out of impatience, they, con- they constructed a golden calf to worship. So Moses comes down from the mountain. Here's the people singing a song to the calf. So he takes the calf and he burns it. This is actually very uh, wild. He takes the calf, he burns it, he scatters the ashes in the water, and then he makes the people of Israel drink the water. That is wild. It's very wild. And Moses says to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses would go back, meet with the Lord, and he would meet with him, we meet with him in what we now know as the tent of meeting. <clears throat> he would pitch his tent, and when he did this, a cloud would descend onto the entrance, and the Lord would speak to Moses. 
The text actually says the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And because of what the people have done, when Moses engages Yahweh, there is a fear that God's presence will leave the Israelites. Here's what he says. But my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So the people of God are marked by the presence of God so that they will be a blessing to the nations. Moses is saying that if the presence of God does not accompany them to the promised land, he wants nothing to do with it. And what is God's presence for if not to be a distinctive blessing to the world with the proof and the power that they are Yahweh's and Yahweh is theirs? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face. For man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So that's exactly what happens. The covenant is renewed. God does not go back on his promise, even though the people literally construct another God to worship. And Moses comes down off the mountain after meeting with God. And this is what it says. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai, With the two tablets of testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. Power. What is happening with Moses and what happens with the people is that they have met with God and what comes from a meeting with God is power. Not power in what we typically associate as power. It's not prestige. It's not promotion. In fact, it's honest pleading. Please show me your glory. That leads to awe and humility. We are not going into that land unless your presence is going with us. We are not entering into the territory unless you are holding to your promise. So it's Moses pleading with God to not leave the people. God hearing his prayer and responding to it by actually giving Moses an even greater sense of his presence. So close. It's as if they are lifelong friends conversing. And yet such reverence that Moses can't see his face because no one can see the face of God and live. Then there's Joshua. The first words of Joshua are this. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land that I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. See, Moses does not, in fact, see the promised land. He is buried before he sees it. Joshua succeeds him, is blessed by Moses before he dies, and is about to embark on a 500-year promise that God has put forth. But 
before Joshua even gets to the promise of the land, he gets to the promise of the presence. Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And this promise is important because the backdrop is that before Joshua ever came into leading Israel, he was worshiping Yahweh in the tent while Moses was still alive. The scriptures say that when Moses left the tent, his servant Joshua would not depart from the tent. So Joshua has learned the whisper of God, the voice of the one calling his people to himself. Close proximity to Moses who speaks to God like he speaks to a friend. And devotion to God himself is forming Joshua into the succession plan. And God's promise to Moses is God's promise to Israel. And God's promise to Israel involves Joshua. And then there's the vow. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. So, the people of God were going to move from the place they were camping, which is Shittim, and go to the Jordan River. Now, from Shittim to the place they camped was around a mile or two. Isn't it strange? Isn't it odd, perhaps, that Yahweh would command the people to move for just a singular mile? It is odd, but it is also intentional. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now, I don't camp. I don't like camping. I think camping is for the literal birds. Why would you intentionally choose to sleep outside when you have the option? And you can, of course, sleep inside. I don't know why people do this. It makes no sense to me. I've heard that some people say that it's fun. I have yet to experience such glee. But I did go camping this fall. And it rained. Which definitely guarantees I will never camp again. (laughs) But what I realized throughout the three days is that camping is quite the chore. It's quite the job. You're always moving. You're always working. You're always tinkering with food and sleep and comfort and fire. And so I'm imagining that moving an entire nation a mile or two only to move again in three days is an extraordinary and obnoxious task. Why do this? Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There is a preparation that is required. And here's what we know throughout history, and here's what we know throughout Scripture. Consecration leads to visitation. 
Preparing your soul, mind, and body for what God will do has always been what opens your eyes to see what God is doing. And then there is power. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan, now choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one for each tribe. When the feet of the priest who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its waters will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in mass. Now, here is where it gets very good. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now, this is where if we don't read closely... We completely miss it. This reads like a meaningless descriptor in the story, but it's not. The priest enter knee deep into the water, and it is the echo of Exodus, except this time they have to actually enter into the water. In the story of Moses crossing the Red Sea, Moses touches his staff with the water and it parts. And the people of God would know that story. They would know it actually by heart, but this time it's their turn. So the children... And the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren are no longer living on the shoulders of their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents' faith. It's their turn. It's their faith. And to show you what I mean, here is a map. So the blue line here indicates um, where the people of God would have crossed the Jordan River, the crossing site there in the middle. The water stood up at the city of Adam, which is the city at the top. The best analogy I've got is if you go and walk to the volunteer landing and stick your knees in the Tennessee River and just stand there. The intersection where the river dries up is somewhere in Lenore City. So the priests enter the water with the ark. With the presence of God and just stand there and wait. So much of God's promise involves waiting. And we don't know how long they stood there. They could very well, scholars, theologians would say, it was very well hours that they just stood in the river looking like a complete fool. But the power to stand in the water. And nothing happen requires a renewed level of faith. Yesterday's faith is not for today. Yes, we need to reflect and remember what God has done. That is throughout the story of Scripture. But we also need to be reminded, as John Wimber said, that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. The story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea is critical, but there's got to be a renewed level of faith, a renewed purpose, a disrupting of your comfort to reestablish conviction that says God is now inviting us to something more. Which leads me to us. So I'm going to be honest with you. I think the majority of people in this room need to know that the promise of God is for you on January 7, 2024. 
that the same God that promised Moses and Joshua an inheritance has not left you high and dry. And you can probably reflect back on your life and map out different mile markers where God showed up either quietly or loudly. But the last year or the last two years or the last three years, last however long, there is a nagging question. Is the promise of God still true for me? For us? The main players in the scripture, the ones who lead movements of God at times in their life, killed, assaulted, abandoned, were mocked, looked down on, and disregarded. God's promises are not for those who have their lives together but feel their lives collapsing. The promise of God and the blessing of God is for the wounded and the wounder, the sinner and the sufferer. It's for the one whose anger is out of control and it's for the one whose future is completely unknown. It is for the one who longs to have children and it's for the one who longs to have parents. It's for the one who has received racist remarks by people close to them and it's for the ones who espouses racist comments without even knowing it. It is for the one who feels unseen every time they enter a room. And it's for the ones who can easily hold the room but feel the deepest sense of loneliness every time they leave. The promise of God for you this year is that the first word God speaks to you is grace. That he will be your God, that he will be our God, that we will be his people and you will be called his child. And we love because he first loved us. The heart of God is pursuit. We, the church in 2024, inherit the promise of Israel. That Yahweh is personified in Jesus, dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And the promise of God tabernacling among the people and the arrival of God in the flesh is now, right now, our inheritance through the Spirit. All that Jesus had as the Son is yours. All the blessing Jesus received as he walked the earth is yours. The resurrection Jesus experienced is yours. The future reign of the kingdom of God on earth is yours. Now, in 2 Corinthians it says, It is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. What is a down payment but the reality that something is yours and you can experience it even if you're not experiencing it completely? The promise is ours. The kingdom is ours. The king is ours. Then there is vow. So God dwelling in us, among us, means we receive the invitation of grace and to participate by the Spirit's power in our own transformation. The idea of vows in our culture is pretty much lost, but the only place where we seem to have hung on to them are weddings. And a few years ago, I was doing a wedding, and I was in the back room with the groom and the groomsmen, and we were just chatting before the ceremony. And there was an older man sitting there kind of minding his own business, who happened to be a father of one of the groomsmen. And everyone there is talking about how much they love weddings, their best memories, funny memories, memorable moments. And all of a sudden, this older man pipes up and says, you know what the best part of the wedding is? The only part that makes it legally observable by the state. The vows. Anybody can throw a good wedding. It takes a special few to live a good vow. 
Now, I love doing weddings. I've done about 10 now, and they're really sweet. But I love you and you love me doesn't make it a wedding. A large crowd or a select few does not make it a wedding. A pastor performing a ceremony doesn't make it a wedding. What actually makes it a wedding is what precedes a marriage. Vows. I love you and you love me. Why is that not enough for a wedding? Because we all know it's not enough for a marriage. The vision for your marriage, lifelong love. But to see that marriage lived out, you don't need supercharged emotions on a pitch-perfect day. You need anchors in the ocean, what we call vows. You need an anchor that is going to hold when something hard, difficult, traumatic, or tragic hits. If the day after your wedding, the most perfect of days, a car crash happens that completely paralyzes one of you from the waist down, emotionally charged days aren't going to cut it. You need vows, lifelong, life-altering commitments. And when officiating a wedding, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Today you are young and very much in love, and you think that your love can sustain your covenant. It cannot. Let your covenant sustain your love. And if this is true about marriage, how much more is it true of our relationship with God, both communally and personally? Consecrating ourselves before God just means giving God more of ourselves to work with. Consecrating ourselves before God is just a means of giving God more of ourselves to work with. And this is not something to manipulate God to get his attention or to make him love you more. That is legalism. And it's also not something done out of fear that you are not doing enough for God. That's intimidation. It's love, not legalism or fear, that drives you to make vows to your spouse And it's love, not legalism or fear, that drives us to make vows to God and to one another. Here is what a vow is. A sign that God's presence is actually among us. It is saying with our whole selves, I want to meet with God. I want to be used by God. We want to be set apart for God's purposes in our city, in our workplaces, in our homes, on our streets. We believe. That for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been up to something. A subversive movement where the Spirit of God never, never, never forces anyone to do anything, but changes the desires where you actually want God, His presence, and purpose for your life. The verb is hunger. And so a vow allows us to do that. It puts the vision into practice. It lays out what we want from our life and then puts helpful parameters around it so that it might flourish. You need a way of life, rhythms with God that will ground you, rhythms with one another that will keep you, shared commitments that will form you into a person of love with Jesus as the motivation and others as the recipients. This is what Paul is getting at when he writes to the churches in Rome. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we will enter into Lent next month. What might God be asking of you to give up? 
What might God be asking of you to surrender to? Where are you holding back part of yourself because it is too painful or the mechanism you use is too easy to cope with? We need vows, not for God to love us more, but that we might love God with more of ourselves and we might, we might be used by God for more of His grace. And finally, there is power. So the future of your discipleship to Jesus always, always, always includes two things, death and life. So last summer, we went to the beach with my family. And going to the beach, I always like to get snacks. And there are two candies and one sweet that I really love. And one of those candies are Starburst Jelly Beans. They are divine, consecrated bites of joy. So... I went to the store and I got the largest bag I could find. And on a seven hour drive, I ate half the bag. Now, this is not a small bag. This is a Costco bag. It is a large bag. In fact, it is the largest bag. And the next day on the beach, I ate the other half of the bag. And throughout the week, my suite of choice that gets me every time, of course, while you're at the beach, is ice cream. And I ate so much ice cream, every kind of ice cream. And that Sunday, we come back from the beach. It was in Zeru's last month of leading here. And I came home Sunday after church. And I ate an entire half gallon of ice cream in one sitting. (laughs) And as I'm sitting over the counter, just shoveling Alden's cookie dough ice cream into my mouth with the dang scooper... I almost started crying because I found myself asking, how in the hell did I get here? And through prayer and journaling and reflection, I was coping with the loss of a staff member who had grown to be a friend. I was coping with uncertainty around family dynamics, and I was squashing all the internal noise with massive amounts of sugar. And so nothing audible. But a subtle invitation. Hey Wes, why don't you try me instead of desserts? What you are gorging yourself with sugar, I will actually strengthen you with my presence. What you are doing addresses nothing. It just quiets it for the next four hours. And what I had no idea. No idea was what the next six months of my life would bring. The death and loss of a best friend, the death and loss of Sarah's grandmother, significant leadership changes in the life of this church, the most difficult internal battle of identity, anxiety, and frustration that I've known in 33 years. And I experienced a host of things that were completely outside of my control. And I experienced a wave of emotions that I simply failed to control. And what I found is that the power and the presence of God was just waiting on me. Just waiting on me. And the default grab for the Albanese gummy bears and the Alden's ice cream both became a wave of humiliation. Oh, God, what is happening to me? And freedom. 
Oh God, you are at work in me. I don't need sugar to cope with life. I am loved and empowered by the Spirit. And what has come from that is a renewed reckoning with God. A renewed sense of faith, a dedication and a devotion. And it has come with a significant cost because it always does. It never doesn't. There's a reason that Paul says to the church in Rome, the Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. If we suffer with Him, our common way of thinking is we work our way up to the top. Everything about the American imagination propels us to advance. And everything about the American Christian imagination couches success with external promotions about what God is up to. For instance, when I get a new promotion at work, God is up to something. When I get married, God is up to something. When I have kids, God is up to something. When circumstances in my life change for what I perceive to be better or more positive, God is up to something. And I'm not saying that's all untrue. I am saying that is such a Western way to perceive being loved by God. The way of Jesus baptizes you into a completely new way of life. And that, by the way, includes your imagination. The way of Jesus ends with an empty tomb, but it goes through a personal cross. Jesus, by the way, does not so much share in our sufferings as much as we share in his sufferings. One of the greatest markers of our identification with God is a life filled with scars. The haunting question in 2023 that still haunts me seven days into this year. It was my own personal reckoning with the Lord. What if the Holy Spirit's deep work in me feels like falling apart first? What if what God is doing in me doesn't make me feel good? What if what God is doing in me ends up doing more exposing than propping up and it requires more denial than indulgence? What if God is up to something when it precisely feels like God is up to nothing? What if all the pain and the hurt and the frustration is actually the megaphone of the Spirit? What if the maturing work God is doing in me feels more like surgery on an operating table and less like walking across the graduation platform? What if it means I have more questions than I have answers, more frustrations than I have conclusions, more confounding moments than light bulb ones? Parker Palmer says this, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without faith, hope, and love. Why do you think so many people walked away from Jesus? Who wants to take the road of serious resistance? 
People didn't walk away from Jesus because he promised them an abundant life. They walked away from Jesus because he didn't promise them an easy way to get there. We all want in on God's victory. We are just so unconvinced about the means. We much prefer God's work our way. But we can't accomplish God's work our way because it is precisely God's way where he gets his work done. Which leads me to life. What is the way he gets his work done? It is resurrection. The church has always wanted in on resurrection, but that requires loosening our grip on doing God's work our way. Here is where I think much of the Western church has failed, and I am raising both of my hands in this moment. And I might even get a healthy amount of pushback on this from this room. The mission of Jesus was not to get the gospel understood, and it wasn't even to get the gospel spread. It was to get the gospel lived. I am much less interested in 90% of the people in this city knowing who Jesus is and much more interested in 15% of this city living into who Jesus is. Getting the gospel known is the really easy part. Getting the gospel lived, however, is where traction happens, where transformation takes place, and where healing takes root. I did not become a pastor because I enjoy what I'm doing right now. I stepped into this profession on the belief that getting this stuff lived is where the action is. I don't dream of a community that's smart I don't dream of a community that's unique. I don't dream of a community that's logical or reasonable or niche. I dream of a community that is unexplainable apart from the love of God. A place where the only explanation is that God has visited us and we have embraced his way of life. And resurrection power and the experience of the love of God through the Holy Spirit comes, by the way, in a myriad of ways. It comes to the joy of feasting and celebrating with friends and neighbors. And it comes through the, through the denial of fasting and withholding things like sugar from yourself. It comes through the regular rhythms of spending uninterrupted time in complete silence. And it comes in the consistent practice of being known in community. It comes through the, a regular life of living in proximity to people on the margins. And it comes through losing your attachment to money and safety in finances. It comes through simplifying your life, including the stuff in your home. And it comes through simplifying your time, which means saying yes to some things means saying no to others. It comes through embracing the story of God through the scriptures. And it comes through encountering the God of Sabbath rest. It comes through your sex drive and your stomach. Through the media you consume and what you do with your body, through the hobbies you enjoy and the disciplines you don't. It comes through small acts of love that no one will ever know about. 
And it comes through experiencing what it means to be fathered by God. The life of Jesus takes on the lifestyle of Jesus. And the lifestyle of Jesus was one that was distinct, set apart, consecrated for the purposes of God. I want that as a church. I want this to be a consecrated church. A church that sets some things aside for pursuing the purposes of God. And a church that embraces other things for the purposes of pursuing God. Psalm 27, I have asked one thing from the Lord, and it is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Here is my point. Consecration in the scripture almost always leads to visitation by the Spirit. We are at a unique inflection point in the life of our church. And an invitation by the Spirit to lean into life in God, life to the full. Here is what I know to be true. I know it to be true of myself. And I know it to be true of you because I've seen God do incredible things in so many of you. God has more for you. He just has more for you. In two weeks, we will eat a meal together. That will mark a year of walking in covenantal partnership with one another. What is the Spirit asking you to surrender for more of Him? What is the Spirit inviting you to pursue for more of Him? That is the question that is at the heart that I want to embrace 2024 with. The promise of God, a living vow among us, and the power of God within us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.